You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Carrie Rich to talk about impact investing, a strategy that aims to make more conscious investment decisions that benefit the environment and society as a whole. Carrie is the managing director of Global Impact Fund, a VC fund that backs social entrepreneurs who are women and people of color. She is also co founder of the Global Good Fund, which helps develop young leaders through financial investments and leadership training. Everyone listening to the show is probably the type of person who wants to attain some sort of financial security through investing. I know I am. And that's a great personal goal. But we can't really deny that some things are changing. We're experiencing issues in regards to the environment, society, and governance, not just in the US, but globally. I'm happy to chat with Carrie to understand how we can still invest in great companies while being socially responsible and making a positive impact in the world. Before we get into today's interview with Carrie Rich, I'm going to take some time at the beginning of the episode to answer your questions. I'm super active on Instagram, and if you guys don't follow me already, you can follow me at the Robert Leonard. The other day, I took a Q&A on my Instagram stories, and I got over 50 questions from you guys. I get questions in emails all the time, and then in our Facebook group, there's a bunch of questions. So I just want to take some time answer some questions, do some Q&A with you guys. I know there's a lot of different questions coming in. I want to take some time and include those in the podcast. I usually answer them via email or Instagram or however I receive the questions. But I thought it'd be good to record the questions and my answers in audio form and also include it here in the podcast. So before we get into the interview with Carrie Rich, I'm going to answer some questions, some of the most popular questions that I get from you guys. And I plan to start doing this more. So if you guys like it, let me know what you think. Send me a DM on on Instagram and let me know if you like this being added to the shows. If you don't like it, just want to hear your general thoughts. I want to be able to put out more content that you guys enjoy. So so be sure to let me know what you guys think. And one last thing before we jump into the show is one of my favorite entrepreneurs. His name is Andy Frisella. He can be polarizing. So he's not for everybody. But for me personally, I like a lot of his content. I like what he's done with his businesses. And I'm big in the fitness space. So I align well with him and his businesses since he is a fitness entrepreneur. But he hosts one of the most popular business podcasts in the world. And what he does as part of the show, I want to replicate. And it's a, it's a small piece of it. And I want to do something similar to what he does. And so what that is, is I'm going to ask you guys to pay a fee for the show. And no, it's not a monetary fee. I'm not going to ask you to, to pay any money to listen to the show. The shows are free and, and I expect them to be forever. But what the fee is, is to tell a friend about the show. That's the fee. If you enjoy the show, if it makes you laugh, if it makes you think, if you enjoy the content, just share it with a friend. For each episode you listen to, if you like the show, share it with a friend. I don't run any advertising to promote the show. We pretty much grow organically through word of mouth. So if you guys are enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you just share it with your friends, your family. You don't have to post it on social media. You don't have to share it with everybody. Just for each episode you enjoy that you get value from, share it with one person and ask them to come check it out. If they ask what you're listening to, just tell them, hey, I've been really enjoying the Millennial Investing Podcast. And that's the fee. Guys, thanks so much for all the support. And let's get into this week's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. 
As I said in the intro, I wanted to spend some time here at the beginning of the episode to do some Q&A, answer questions from the audience that I get from you guys, whether it be in our Facebook group or to me directly on Instagram or even via email. I want to take some time to answer those questions here at the beginning, and then we'll bring Carrie into the show. So the first question I've been getting a lot, and the most frequent asker was from James Ripion. James, apologies if I if I didn't pronounce your name correctly, but your question was, what is your allocation to Bitcoin? And so for me, I had no allocation to Bitcoin for a long time. Kind of my background was back in 2017 when it was about $1,000 or $1,200 a coin. I had bought in one Bitcoin and being a Warren Buffett investor, I, it just didn't sit well with me. I, you know, He talks about understanding what you're investing in and really truly understanding the business model and things of that nature, the investment thesis. And for me, I didn't understand it. So I kind of felt sick. I didn't sleep well at night. You know, A lot of experts will say, you need to be able to sleep well at night with your investments. And for me, I just did not sleep well owning Bitcoin. And so I actually sold it the next day. I, I did make a small profit. This was part of the bull run of 2017 that we saw. So I did make a small profit. But if you follow Bitcoin at all, you know that it went from that level of say 1,000 to 1,200 to... 17,000, then through 20,000. And so I left a lot of money on the table. But for me, I just didn't understand it at the time. And now, if we fast forward to 2020, so three years later, through this podcast, the Millennial Investing Podcast, I've been lucky to speak with some of the best minds in crypto, specifically with Pomp, uh, Anthony Pompliano, better known as Pomp, and also with Preston Pish. We've, I've been able to have multiple conversations with these guys, and they've been able to explain it to me in. I feel a lot better about it and I, I understand it a lot better than I did before. I'm not still fully 100% sold on it. So I'm not you know putting 100% of my portfolio or even a big percentage of it. But I do understand the thesis behind it and, and I agree with it partially. So for me, I'm allocating 1% of my portfolio to it. And the reason for that is that I want to at least have some exposure because if it continues to rise to what these guys think it's going to... And I'm not involved, I'll be upset with myself for not having at least allocated a little bit of my portfolio. But with only a 1% allocation, if it goes to zero, I won't be that that upset. I mean, it will stink and nobody wants to lose money, right? But if I lose 1%, that's okay. I can stomach that loss. And also, there's an asymmetric risk return here. If Pomp and Preston are right, then all I need is 1% of my portfolio allocated to it because then it'll significantly outperform everything else, even at a 1% allocation. So for me, I'm comfortable with just 1% of my portfolio allocated to it. The other piece of this is that Preston, for the longest time, was a sole value investor. Through and through, he was a value investor, Warren Buffett style. The first podcast I ever listened to was We Study Billionaires with Preston and Stig. And so I, I trusted and believed and looked up to Preston a lot. And so to see somebody who has the background and training and intelligence that Preston has and the, the understanding of value investing and how long he studied it, to be able to convert to Bitcoin, that tells me there's probably some validity to it. You know, I'm not listening to just some guy on the internet that I don't know their background or anything like that. I know what Preston has studied. I know how much time he's put into it. And I know how much he was a Warren Buffett follower through and through. And so to see him support this, I think for me personally, I need to have at least a little bit of allocation to it. And so I decided back in March after talking to Preston and Pomp that I would allocate 1% of my portfolio to it. I think my price is about 4000 or 4200 or so around there per coin. And I allocated 1% of my portfolio. And today, 
it probably makes up eight to 10% of my portfolio, but that's not because I added more to this position. It's because if you look at the price today of Bitcoin, and I'm recording this on November 24th, 2020, it's about 19,000. So going from 4,000 to 19,000, that's almost a 5X. So as that increases, it's going to take up a bigger percentage of my portfolio. So I haven't allocated anything additional to Bitcoin. I still started with that 1% position and it's just grown a little bit more as a percentage of my portfolio because it's outpaced a lot of my other investments, but I'm not allocating anything more than that initial 1% for now. That could change in the future, but for now, that is my allocation to Bitcoin. James, thanks so much for the great question. The next question I wanted to talk about was from Adam Hayes on Instagram. He asked, what are your thoughts on The Motley Fool for stock picks? So my opinion on The Motley Fool is I think they are fantastic. I listen to all of their podcasts. I read a lot of their articles. I've, I've gotten a lot of my investing from them. Like I said in my last answer to the question about Bitcoin was that We Study Billionaires is the first podcast I ever listened to. And that was because I'm a value investor, Warren Buffett style investor. So that's what kind of got me into that show. But from there... I started to add a little bit of growth investing to my portfolio. And I did that from The Motley Fool. You know, The more I listened to these guys, I really enjoyed their investing philosophy. I think they have really grounded and well thought out investment theses. And so for me, I really enjoy their content a lot. I think they have great ideas. And I, I don't necessarily invest in everything that they recommend. So you ask about stock picks. I don't necessarily go out and buy just everything that they recommend. You know, I don't recommend you doing that with anybody, myself included, or you know, any stock picking service. But I think that they can help you get really good ideas. And for me, one of the big ideas that I got was from Jason Moser, this basket approach. And so for me, I created a basket, a fintech basket, or he calls it the war on cash basket. And so for me, I really believe in that mission or that goal or that thesis behind the trend away from cash. And so for me, I have a big percentage of my portfolio allocated to this war on cash basket. And and all that means is you buy a couple different stocks that could do well if this trend plays out. So rather than saying PayPal is the clear winner and they're going to be the only company that does well if cash goes away, you're basically saying, okay, there's three to five different companies that could do well if this trend away from cash continues. And so you buy all three to five companies and you create your own little basket of stocks, if you will. And so that's what I've done specifically for the war on cash. And so that's just one of the ideas that I've gotten from the Motley Fool team. I think they have a lot of really good ideas. And so I wouldn't follow them blindly as I wouldn't with anybody, but I do think they have a lot of really good content that they put out. I think they come out with a lot of really good ideas. A similar question to this was asked from a listener and he said, how do you suggest I educate myself more on picking growth stocks? Any book suggestions? And I wanted to include this here with the Motley Fool question because I think they kind of go hand in hand. I've learned a lot of my growth investing from listening to The Motley Fool. So that would be my recommendation is listen to The Motley Fool podcast, read their content, connect with some of the hosts of those shows on Twitter and Instagram, wherever you want to follow them. And for book recommendations, I don't really have any great book recommendations for a growth style investing. But what I can recommend is to listen to episode 15 on this podcast that was with Jason Moser or episode 40 that was with Simon Erickson. And Simon specifically is one of my favorite growth investors. Jason may not be considered a growth investor, but he does talk about a lot of growth ideas. So those two episodes are great. I would highly recommend going to follow Simon on on Twitter and Jason and listen to 
all the stuff that they put out, the content, all their investment ideas. I think they're they're a great resource and great value for uh, learning and picking more growth stocks. So thank you both for those questions. And the third and final question I want to answer on today's episode, and like I said, I'll do more of these in future episodes if you guys like it. Be sure to let me know on Twitter or Instagram. Let me know if you like me adding these Q&A sections to the beginning of the episodes, and I will do more of them. But this last question came from Tanner Pike, and he asked, what's the downside, if any, of investing in just VTSAX versus individual companies? When I was asked this question, I had to stop and think for a little because I, I was like, what are the downsides of VTSAX? And you know, honestly, it's kind of hard to come up with the downsides of it versus individual companies. There's a lot of benefits low cost, great diversification. And historically, it's provided great returns and we expect it will continue to provide great returns. And so what are the downsides of VTSAX versus individual companies? And so for me, I guess the only thing that I could really think of was that there is a lack of control and a lack of potential returns. So let's talk about the lack of control. With VTSAX, you don't really have a say in what the fund or ETF or mutual fund owns. It's you're buying the underlying assets. And that can be a great thing. That could be a very easy, low cost way to diversify for a lot of investors. But that could be considered a downside is that you don't have control over those investments. So, you know, a big one lately has been whether Tesla was going to be included in the SP 500. For me personally, I've never invested in Tesla because I want to stay away from that. But I am a big investor in an SP 500 ETF. And so now, because I don't control that ETF, I have no say in whether I'm going to own some of Tesla. Just by owning the S&P 500 fund, I'm going to own some of Tesla if it does continue to go through and actually make it into the S&P 500. So the same thing with VTSAX is if you don't want to own certain companies that are in there, you don't have the control to you know, change that. You're, you're buying the fund in total. And then the second piece is you might have potentially lower returns. There is a lot of research and a lot of arguments that say individual stock pickers can't outperform the market and broad funds like VTSAX will outperform. And if you go back and listen to the episode with JL Collins, he's very confident that he thinks the VTSAX will outperform individual stock pickers. That said, I think you are potentially leaving some returns on the table. I think people can beat the market. I personally believe that you can pick the market by picking individual companies if you do the research and put in the time and the due diligence. So I think it's possible to earn outsized returns or market beating returns with individual companies. So you could argue that the downside of VTSAX is that you earn you just earn the market and, and you're not going to be able to outperform the market. Now that is a very big task to undertake. I'm not saying that beating the market is going to be easy and most people won't do it, but I think there are people that can. And so and so the downside would be that you there's no chance for you to outperform the market with just VTSAX. All right. So that's it for the Q&A on this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed those three questions. Like I said, please let me know if you enjoyed it. I'd love to hear your feedback and I will do more of it if you guys enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, I can stop doing it as well. So I just want to make sure I'm putting out the content that you guys like. And now let's bring Carrie Rich into the show. Carrie, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. 
Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. Let's start the show by talking a bit about you. Tell us your story and how you got to where you are today. I started as an intern, as many people start, in healthcare organization in a hospital system. And I got the worst jobs on the totem pole. So I mopped the floor. I pushed snack cart. I folded baby clothes in the maternity ward, kind of all the lowest rung jobs. And one of my jobs was to take attendance. And who should walk into this meeting where I was taking attendance, but the CEO of this multi-billion dollar hospital system. And I had done some homework about him and learned that while he had been growing this very big healthcare organization, he'd simultaneously been building the health infrastructure in Haiti. And to me, that was just eye-opening as someone you know, I really wanted to learn from. He clearly lived a life of purpose and wanted to build a legacy that was meaningful. And it was someone I wanted to learn from. So I asked him for a meeting on living a life of purpose. And from that meeting, we started writing together a project about 
healthcare and sustainability. And the reason I personally got into healthcare was because at the time I was in school, you couldn't study social entrepreneurship. That wasn't, that wasn't a topic to be able to study. And so I figured healthcare was the closest thing to it. It was the business of helping people and business of doing good. So I ended up working, going from an intern to working for the CEO, and it was a dream job opportunity. And he mentored me and did all the things that you would hope a boss would do in terms of sponsorship and coaching and helping me grow. As a result, my career progressed a lot more quickly than it would have had he not been mentoring me. And so I said to him one day, wouldn't it be great if we could find other young people like me who are strong work ethic, moral compass, and pair them with people like you who have a real commitment to mentoring and have a lot of success in their careers and pair those two groups together as a catalyst for social good. I wonder what would happen. And that's how the Global Good Fund was born eight years ago. So our main topic of today's show is going to be impact investing. And that's something I don't really know a lot about. So I'm excited to learn more about it with you throughout today's episode. So start off by explaining to us what impact investing is. And for those who may not know. Traditional investing would mean taking money and putting it in companies where you think you can maximize your financial returns. And philanthropy would be donating to nonprofit organizations where you can maximize your social impact. And so impact investing would be the intersections of those two investments. Investing in for-profit companies where you can both create financial returns and also create social impact returns. So if a company has great social impact returns, but not great financial returns, we're not interested. That's not going to be a great return for investors. And similarly, if there's a company that has great financial returns, but doesn't deliver social impact, that also wouldn't be a great impact investment. Impact investing is the intersection of doing well financially while doing good from a social impact. So we're not looking at companies like big tobacco or probably oil companies or things like that. Could you give some examples of companies that might fit this mold of impact investing? So huge companies that really at this point don't require our investment. But as an example, you know, a Patagonia would be an example of a company that would be a great impact investment. They're financially profitable and they stand for social impact and environmental stewardship. So for those who aren't familiar with Patagonia, what do they do that makes them a socially focused enterprise? Thanks for the following question. So Patagonia is a retail outfitter for outdoor clothing, apparel, and they create sustainable, environmentally sustainable apparel. They suggest that you don't actually keep buying new clothes every season and actually keep wearing the clothes that you have. The way they run their business is certified to be ethical. And so the way they pay their employees, the governance, everything about how they run their company looks at it from a stewardship standpoint, socially and environmentally. There's been an increasing focus on socially responsible investing or ESG investing, which just stands for environmental, social, and governance, which is where investors are increasingly focused on non-financial factors like you've been talking about when they're making their investment decisions. How is impact investing different or how is it similar to socially responsible investing? ESG criteria are popular way for investors to consider companies that they might want to invest in. And mutual funds, brokerage firms, now even robo-advisors offer products that employ ESG criteria. For me, one of the big differentiators between ESG and impact investing is that ESG criteria can help investors avoid companies that could pose 
financial risk due to environmental or other practices. Most of the time, and many times, ESG criteria is used to avoid companies, whereas impact investing is used to intentionally invest in companies that create social good. I personally think ESG investing taken to a next level from what we're seeing now, if it was taken up a few notches, we could be even more intentional about investing companies that do good for the world rather than just avoiding other companies that don't practice social or environmental stewardship and impact investing takes those morals to that next level. There are a lot of companies that investors invest in, and they're not really so much focused on the social side of things, and they still have a hard time making adequate returns. With your number one priority being to make money for your investors, how do your investors actually make money when investing in an impact fund, which is investing in companies that aren't even focused on so much as just profits? Great question. There are all different ways to do impact investing. So I'll start there and say, our fund in particular focuses as the number one priority on making market-leading returns for our investors. And that would mean that you would make the same returns whether you invested in a traditional venture capital fund as compared to the returns we aim to generate in this impact fund. The way our investors win is when three ways. When the companies exit. So when the companies we invest in have an exit, meaning they're sold or acquired by another company, and therefore the cash comes back to the company and our investors. When the companies that we invest in IPO or go public. And when there's another major liquidity event, meaning the next round of investors come in and put money into the company such that our, the original investors, in this case us, would get repaid and then some. And so those are the three ways, three examples of how our investors would win financially and create market-leading returns from impact investments. Understandably, it varies. But in general, what types of returns do investors see when investing in a VC impact fund like yours? We have been running a small impact fund for the last four years, and it's a bit too early to tell because we haven't had exits yet. We're in three and a half years, I should say. We haven't had an exit yet, but what we are seeing are trajectories that are similar or the same as what you'd see in traditional VC funds. And so what we're aiming for is a 3.5x net return, which means that for every $1 you put in, you get $3.5 back. And so we're aiming for the exact same type of market returns that you'd get from a traditional VC fund. But in our case, you'd be investing in social impact companies that are led by people of color and women and generate all kinds of social impact. Are you able to give some examples of the types of companies that your impact VC fund is investing in? What types of social impacts are they making on the world? So a few examples of the companies we're invested in. One is called Manage Mindfully, which teaches mindfulness to kids. During COVID, they've pivoted to be available online to both teachers and students and are currently providing mindfulness training 1 million students across the country. Another example is the Jackfruit Company. That's a meat substitute product made from jackfruit, and they are available in Costco, Walmart, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, True Foods restaurant chain across the country. They are supporting 1,000 farmers right now in providing jackfruit. 10 to 40% of these farming families' income comes from this jackfruit product through the jackfruit company, and they're about to double the number of farming families that can create those kinds of annual income. And a third example is called Asusu, which is a company that provides credit scores for people who are poor. So people who are poor, they have a really hard time creating a credit score. About 45 million people in America don't have a credit score, and about 150 million people in America are credit insecure. 
which means they're, they don't have great credit scores. What ASUSU does is partners with landlords to make sure that people who are paying their rent get credit for doing that. They can establish a credit score by paying their rent. So it's a win-win-win all around. So far, 200,000 tenants are currently using ASUSU. 100% of those tenants now have credit scores, and their credit scores since using ASUSU have increased 20 to 100 points per person. So you can see that for low-income people across America, this is a major win. They're now able to borrow money from the bank to pay for continuing education to eventually buy a home. It's creating equity in a population that previously didn't have it. So these are some of the returns that we can generate that are social impact returns. And all three of these companies that have just been described are also creating great financial returns for their investors. So from the perspective of the company that's working with your fund, are they receiving a capital investment and you take an ownership stake in the company just like a traditional VC fund would, except you guys are just specifically focused on these types of impact companies? You know, There's VC funds that focus on tech or healthcare or whatever it may be. There's VC funds that focus on everything. And you guys are a traditional VC fund, if you will, but you just focus on these impact companies. That's exactly right. So we're looking for companies that can generate both financial and social impact returns. We have five areas that we generally look at in terms of investment opportunities for the Global Impact Fund, and they include health, education, financial services, economic mobility, and environmental stewardship. And for us, the reason we can go so broad is because the Global Impact Fund gets some of our pipeline from the Global Good Fund, which is a nonprofit accelerator organization fellowship program. So we, through the Global Good Fund, effectively de-risk some of the companies through mentoring and leadership development that we then invest in through the Impact Fund. And we also look outside of the Global Good Funds network to identify other social entrepreneurs the same way a traditional VC fund would. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. 
A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I know you mentioned that you guys have been a VC fund for about three and a half, four years, but have you been seeing an increasing interest on the investor side from people that want to start investing in these types of funds? Because it seems to me that it may be more from the millennials, so maybe not investors who have all the money to invest in a VC fund yet, but it seems like there's a lot of people that are starting to want to focus on these types of investments. Are you starting to see that in your VC fund? You're nailing it. That's definitely happening. When we originally thought about this concept, it was about seven or eight years ago. And at that time, it was really hard to convince people that you could do well while doing good. People thought that you had to give philanthropically at a one bank account and invest from a different bank. And now there is recognition that you can invest money to do well financially while doing good for the world. What we're seeing that's really exciting right now is an uptick in participation from next generation investors. And in families where the children are in their late teens, 20s, 30s, they are definitely encouraging their parents to get involved in impact investing in a way that was not happening four years For someone who wants to become an impact investor, how much money do they need? Do they need to be an accredited investor just like they would for a traditional VC fund? To invest in a VC fund, you do need to be an accredited investor. But I personally got started with impact investing without doing it through a VC fund. And the way I did that, and not that it's the right way, but it's a way, is I sought out leaders who I really wanted to support who are running ethical, socially impactful businesses where there was going to be a profit or I thought there would be. And I saved up over a period of time to be able to make pretty small investments. It, It doesn't require being an accredited investor to get started. What's required is that you start looking at what's out there and express interest in what other people are doing that could be creating financial and social impact returns. And what I did was just, I asked the leaders of a business to coffee and just said, uh, could I learn more about your business and everything that's gone wrong? Because I want to help you succeed. I really care about the business you're leading and you as leaders. And I believe in you. I want to help you. How can I help you with the impact capital and the financial capital that I have? And so I think that's a great way to get started is ask people for a virtual conversation at this time or, or when COVID's ended uh, in person. But the reality is most people are really receptive to, to a helping hand. And that millennials who are getting started, who maybe don't have an accredited investor status, 
can still be investors by taking a slightly different route, starting a little bit smaller and finding companies that you really believe in, knowing that it's a financial risk and you could lose all of your money, but that it establishes track record for you to get started as an impact or angel investor. So as the VC fund, and you're analyzing these companies that want investments, how do you quantify or just consider the social impact that a company is going to make? It seems like a very qualitative thing. So how do you quantify that? How do you compare one company to another? It seems like it could be apples and oranges. So how do you consider that? Measuring impact is definitely a challenge. Thankfully, there are international rating systems like IRIS, GIN. So there are different international standards. Rockefeller Foundation has played a critical role in establishing these global standards for social impact. And so we pulled from those uh, social impact standards to be able to measure the effectiveness from a social impact standpoint of the companies that we work with. We also spend time working one-on-one with each company to ask them to quantify the social impact. And really, I'm very thankful for our initial investors because they were the ones who demanded that. From, from my standpoint, coming from the social impact space, it was obvious to me when these companies were delivering social impacts or not. But our investors wanted more than that feeling. You know, they, they wanted to know how is my money not only making me more money, but helping create a better world. Of course, a feel-good factor in that. And so when we can help quantify that by talking and working directly with the entrepreneurs and helping them take their impact measurement to the next level through some of these international rating systems, not only provides a benefit for the companies themselves, but also our investors. Is there essentially a board of directors maybe or just VC partners that have the ultimate say or ultimate decision on which companies to invest in? We have what's called an investment committee. And what that investment committee does is the final stage of due diligence before a decision is made from an investment angle. And so we would first receive interest from the companies or perhaps go out and seek, seek out companies that we want to invest in and do some initial due diligence and bring that to the investment committee. And the investment committee in an ideal world would be a diverse array of different perspectives, which was not always the case. And so diversifying who's at the table from a decision-making standpoint is critical here. And then that investment committee will help make a decision about why or why shouldn't we as a fund invest in a specific company. And then ultimately, the decision is that investment company, investment committee in some companies or the managing partner in other VC funds. So for millennials who are listening to the show today that might not fit the qualifications of being an accredited investor to actually directly invest in an impact fund, How can they make responsible investment decisions that make satisfactory returns so we don't want to sacrifice any of our returns while also still having an impact on the world? I love this question. And I think in the future, we'll see more opportunities where folks can invest in smaller amounts. And I think there are already some funds that are doing that. And so I think the first recommendation I would have is to look for first opportunities where you don't need to be an accredited investor. And usually what that looks like is directly approaching social impact entrepreneurs and asking them, maybe they need angel investors. Maybe it's not a formal round, not a CDA or CV stage investment yet where they're recruiting venture capital investment. Maybe they want a friends and family round that you as a millennial can participate in in a smaller way and have meaningful social impact. And the way to do that is by networking and reaching out to people and expressing interest in their company as a potential investor. I'm very entrepreneurial. So as we're, we're talking, we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about just different ways that millennials or just non-accredited investors could get involved in this space. And 
not too long ago, we had a guest named Artem Milinchak on the show, and he founded a farmland investing crowdfunded platform. So people who could, you had to be accredited, but you could still invest in in these different farmland investment opportunities through this this platform. And it made me think of just all these other real estate platforms that are crowdfunded. And it seems like there could potentially be an opportunity to crowdfund an impact fund, if you will, for non-accredited investors that allow them to still invest in companies that are doing social good. And then there's also probably an opportunity. I know my local credit union actually has a program where you can invest into local businesses that are looking to raise money. And not all of them are going to be for social good. So you'd have to find one that is. But those could be opportunities to invest in socially responsible companies in your area when you don't have to be an accredited investor. You're making great points. And there, I believe there will be future opportunities and are some today where you don't need to be an accredited investor. The challenge from a, from a fund standpoint is there are different rules from an SEC standpoint that kick in the more investors you have. And so the lower the threshold it is to entry, the harder it is to manage because there are different rules that apply. One of the things that we're doing at the Global Impact Fund, for example, is creating opportunities for first-time investors, especially people of color and women, so that our investor pool reflects the diversity of the entrepreneurs that we're invested in. And I think as you continue to see the threshold decrease for the size of the investment, you will definitely see more opportunities for millennials to participate. But I would just encourage, you know, like I said earlier, there's so many ways to invest beyond a VC impact fund. And so by going out and being an angel investor, you are an impact investor. You don't need to wait for other people. You can do it right now. You can go be an impact investor. And it's not about how much money you have. It's about using your social capital and your financial capital to create social good with financial returns. And I wonder if there's even opportunities on platforms like Kickstarter. You know, I haven't done any research into this, so I don't, I don't know. I'm totally speculating here. But a lot of people that are trying to raise money on Kickstarter are often millennials or younger people. And like we talked about, a lot of the younger generation is looking to do social good. So I wonder if there's going to be a component where you can invest in or you know, back companies through platforms like Kickstarter or Indiegogo that are doing social good. So maybe you could do something that way. I have seen a few examples of crowdfunding for specific companies. When a company wants to ensure that there's diversity of investors from an age and demographic standpoint, there are crowdfunding fundraising techniques that are being used to create social impact companies. I think it's a, it's a different way. It's a different approach. It's a really neat approach to engage a more diverse population. As an investor yourself, how are you participating in impact investing? And how do you consider portfolio allocation when you're thinking about how much exposure to add to impact investing versus traditional investment opportunities? So as an impact fund manager, my skin is in the game. So I personally put money in and my time is in the game and my reputation is in the game. And I think for me personally, we've been supporting social entrepreneurs for eight years through the Global Good Fund, which is a nonprofit side, and for almost four years through the first impact fund. And now we're raising a second. And what I can say from a reputation standpoint is that there are very few women leading VC funds. There are even fewer social impact funds. And there are even fewer social impact funds led by women. And so for me, this is an immense responsibility to try to pave the way for aspiring impact investors who are women and other minorities who want to get in the game and making sure that our investment committee advisors and staff reflect the diversity of the entrepreneurs that we invest in is critical to doing this right. 
Where do you see the future of impact investing heading? I see the future heading in a direction where impact investing is no longer its own thing. Because I think our generation will demand that companies take a greater stake in social good and environmental stewardship, and that it'll be natural to invest in companies that do good for the world. I think that's the future. Yeah, I had a guest on the earlier episodes, and his name was Daniel Crosby, and he said the same thing about behavioral finance. He said he sees in the future that there's probably not going to be a topic or study of behavioral finance. It's just going to be finance. And it sounds like you feel the same way, is, is there's not going to be necessarily impact investing. It's not going to be broken out as its own thing. It's just going to be part of being a successful investor. I totally agree. I think it'll take a little while to get there. And so I think it's on us to demonstrate that you can make financial returns while doing good. Because the more that happens, the more likely it is for businesses to pursue social impact and for investors to do the same. And when we don't do that well, the opposite will happen. So I think it's going to be a, a time, a long time frame to make it happen. I don't think it'll happen tomorrow. And I think it's on us to start the companies that are socially impactful and to invest in companies that are socially impactful and make it work. Yeah, that's going to be a big shift. And any shift like that takes time. But I actually agree. I think I could see it going that way, especially with our generation going the way it is and starting to invest the way that it is. So Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the show today and talking all about a new type of investing that I really hadn't been too familiar with or really studied too much myself. For those listening today that want to learn more about this topic and just the various different things that you have going on, where's the best place for them to reach you? Well, I would love to receive your email. My email is carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E dot rich, R-I-C-H at globalgoodfund.org. All right. And I know everyone listening to the show today is very active. They love reaching out to the guests. So guys, take advantage of that opportunity. Reach out to Carrie her brain and, and see what she has for information that she can give you. I'll be sure to put a link to her email in the show notes as well as the Global Good Fund and all the different things that Carrie has going on. Thanks so much, Carrie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.